This podcast was brought to you in partnership with Liz Earle Beauty Co. Hi everyone, I'm glad to be back today. We had a little mid-season break last month, so apologies if you missed us, but we're back and we're ready to go. On today's episode, we've actually got Dan Raven Ellison back. It's been a couple of years since we last chatted to him and boy, has he been busy. Let's find out more about his Slowways project and the latest on National Park Cities. Hi Dan, welcome back. What have you been up to lately? It's been a while. It's been a while. It's been well over a couple of years, hasn't it? And last time we met in a studio in Soho rather than on Zoom. I know, that was pretty swish. I really miss that studio. Yeah, it's a different world since then. Yeah, it sadly is. Have you been coping okay? Yeah, I've been coping just fine. I think that, you know, I think obviously this whole COVID thing has been a trauma for everyone in various different ways. And we've had some hard times, but there's been there's been good sides to the whole thing of having a slightly slower lifestyle and being a bit more local as well so yeah swings and balances exactly yeah I'm kind of still trying to get used to sort of unfurling myself ready for sort of social interaction I don't think I'm quite there yet but I'm slowly getting there hopefully to be able hopefully get out and about a bit more soon yeah I went to a festival the other day and just it, it was it was interesting sort of just learning to dance again really a bit like yeah. a a bear coming out of hibernation and just starting to sort of feel your muscles sort of come back to life again but yeah using like eye contact and things like that not hiding behind a mask uh, <laughs> <laughs> all things I need to to relearn so you were quite busy over lockdown weren't you because you were kind of nibbling away at your slowways project lockdown was a curious thing for this project because essentially I had this idea a while ago you know, inspired by a lot of walking I've done around the country of, you know, what, what would it be like if we had a massive network of walking routes that connected all the towns and cities across the country, really founded by this principle that I think we all should be able to walk reasonably, directly, safely, accessibly, enjoyably between any two neighbouring settlements. And we have that expectation for our cars. Um, and actually, historically, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, we've had that expectation, you know, if you're on a horse or you're traveling by by foot, but somehow we've maybe lost that a bit from traveling around the country. And I got thinking about that and started this project off just before lockdown, getting some people together in central London to play around with this idea of creating this, this big network of walking routes. And I thought that COVID was going to just put the whole thing to a halt, really. But lots of the volunteers who got involved very early on um, sort of got together and said, no, look, we can take this online. Um, and so we created some really, really, really big Google spreadsheets, learned how to use Zoom properly and trained 700 people up to help us start creating these walking routes between sort of neighboring settlements. And while I thought that COVID was going to be the thing that was going to delay or, you know, make the, the project not work, actually, because there are so many people who, who loved walking, who loved maps, who liked geography, who were isolated and wanted to collaborate with others, because so many of these people were inside and available actually I think it put rocket fuel on the project as a whole so it was really interesting for us how how COVID helped slow ways along. It's brilliant and I get asked about it quite a lot in my meetings um, with various sort of clients and people have you heard of slow ways I'm like yes I have (laughs) (laughs) and it is so important to have like a kind of walking network that has been um, documented properly and that's like 
one of the issues that sort of we've come across um, when we've created our sort of green roots feature, which I must talk to you about another time, but just helping people find new ways of enjoying circular walks or walks from A to B, it kind of feels like the very least we can do for people right now, especially, you know, under the kind of crises that we're living in, you know, everything from things like COVID to the climate crisis to the obesity and mental health crisis. Like if we can enable walking for everybody, um, that feels like a really good thing to be a part of. Without a doubt. And, you know, at the risk of having a complete love in, you know, often when we're talking about slow ways to people, they say, why have you seen Go Jauntly? That's really cool what those guys are doing. You know, you're talking to them. And I think that it's, it's really exciting the way that there's different initiatives that are getting it, trying to get more people outside walking in different ways, in different innovative ways. And I think it's a very exciting time to be doing the kind of work that both of us are interested in. But, you know, there are all these sort of really interesting barriers at play that, that need to be tackled, I think. So um, a lot of footpaths in the country, um, you know, people to, to walk between neighbouring places have to take dog legs in order to avoid dangerous roads or avoid, you know, private land that is so big that people just won't complete those journeys. And even then, a lot of those footpaths are highly inaccessible to a lot of people as well. And so while ramblers are doing some absolutely fantastic work around making sure that we sort of save paths from the past to make sure we have them in the future, I think there's a lot of good work to be done around saying, well, given the fact we have new towns and new villages and different people's needs, and a lot of us want to have a more inclusive environment for people to walk and wheel around the place, where do we need new paths for the future? And I think the fact that lots of slow ways aren't as direct as they should be helps to create a very interesting sort of emotional, political, cultural tension that will hopefully create new paths as well as new routes in the future. Yeah, I love that angle of it as well. And I'd only just heard of Dog Ears on Twitter from you this morning. Is it where you have to go on a massive diversion to get from A to B when it would take you like five minutes if you didn't have to do that? Exactly. And I think even if, even if the walk is only you know as soon as you're walking a third a half two thirds more than than you know you should be to complete a journey clearly that might be fine if you're a recreational walker and you're just walking mm -hmm. in circles for a laugh but if you're trying to get to the next village to go to the pub or a funeral or a festival or to see a friend or buy some milk or whatever clearly you're far more likely to jump in your car aren't you mm -hmm. um so i think there are all these there are all these places where um, relatively small sections of new paths could massively increase the number of people walking between places. So do you think um, your sort of Slow Ways project will also kind of tackle some of the issues around walking infrastructure as well and potentially get those in place? So at the moment we're very focused on routes um, rather than paths. The distinction there being, you know, um, the route being how you might navigate from one place to another rather than the paths themselves. But I think naturally if you're talking about routes not being good enough, people then start asking questions about how you can improve the infrastructure as well. And I think one of the interesting questions that we've been asking that, that it appears it's a slightly different question to questions that many other people are asking is around inclusivity and accessibility. Mm -hmm. So the prevailing thinking around that tends to be a question, which is, is this path um, 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 accessible to uh, people who have scooters and wheelchairs and that kind of thing? And, and and then what you end up with is lots of routes being shared around the country that people can follow, which are at the highest quality of standard for people who have mobility needs. So the path might be a metre and a half wide, it's always tarmacked, there's no styles, all this kind of thing. But it's, it's almost working to the highest standard, but 
what, what it's not allowing for is the fact that there are some people who might have a wheelchair that's 60 centimetres wide. They've got great strength and wherewithal and they can get themselves to the top of a mountain, thank you very much, as long as there is not a style in their way. And even if there is a style, I know some people who would get out of the wheelchair, collapse it, squeeze through a hole, then get out the other side. And so that there's another question, which is where might you be able to get to if you have the right kit and the right level of strength? And so Slowways is, is, is trying to ask some of those questions about accessibility, which isn't just about the paths and routes, which we know are fine for two people in scooters, you know, moving along in parallel on the most accessible routes, but for the people who are um, are more capable of going through more extreme environments, where might you be able to get to if, if those are your desires? Mm. That's really interesting. And I guess there's another angle which potentially might need to be explored as well, because you've got all, ty all types of accessibility needs. Um, so things like what we've been doing with some of our routes now is we've been describing what we see. So for example, um, if there's like cobbled pavestones or low hanging branches um, or like a, a dip on one side of the path, just so that we can help people who are either less confident walkers or potentially partially sighted um, to help them walk confidently as well. Yeah, I think that's great. And the other side to this as well is in our sort of user feedback, there's a lot of people, it appears, that are actually very afraid of cows. And, you know, if there's a, a field of young cows that are particularly sort of frolicky and excited, then that's a significant barrier for a lot of people in terms of their, their, their confidence. And understandably mm. so, because cows can be I'm a bit malicious sometimes. Um, and, and equally, we were asking questions about, you know, is this route appropriate for like a, a Shih Tzu sized dog or a, a St. Bernard sized dog? Because those yeah. are also accessibility issues for many people. Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't fancy carrying a St. Bernard over a style. No, I don't think I'd be able to do it. But, but, but a St. Bernard might be able to carry me over a style. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Gallop over it. I guess there's all sorts of things to consider as well with some of these paths. Things like um, like walkability in winter, you know, when it's super muddy. Um, I don't know if I've told you, I must have told you before how I was scared of mud for like many years of my life. I'm still getting used to walking through muddy trails right now. Really? I, I didn't know that was a favourite of yours. I love mud. I, I love mud. I love mud, yeah. <laughs> I'm growing to love it now but you know you're not you're not been to Glastonbury then <laughs> no I've never been to a festival so, never been to a festival at all <laughs> not like one of those no I've been to like one where you go for a day I haven't been camping either just putting that out there because I know I'm going to get ridiculed again <laughs> well, well, maybe some exposure therapy around going to Glastonbury and hoping that it's going to be a wet year it might it might either you know it might cure you or um, yeah. might, might mean lots of therapy to get over the experience. Yeah, maybe I should do that. Today, I want to talk about our new walking challenges feature that we launched to help people celebrate their walking wins. It's free to use on iOS and Android, and participants can unlock badges by committing to micro adventures on foot, along with all the other brilliant benefits that brings, from reduced carbon emissions to feeling happier and healthier. This month, we have a new Walktober challenge that just went live. Take advantage of those shortening daylight hours and challenge yourself to walk every day in October. Even a 10-minute brisk walk counts, so grab an umbrella and get out there whatever the weather. To check it out, just update to the latest version of the app and visit the new Challenges tab.
My walk tip today is the new History and Nature in Chichester route that you made, Hannah. I've never been there, but scrolling through your walk has made me want to add it to the list. The cathedral looks beautiful, the Bishop's Palace Garden looks like such a cool hidden oasis, and I also wouldn't mind having a wander around the shops. So check it out in the app, it's History and Nature in Chichester. I um, read that you won some amazing funding, which means that you're kind of sorted for like the next six or seven years, which is amazing. And it's exactly what organizations such as yours need right now. It's fantastic. So we, when I started Slow Ways Off, I was kind of expecting it to be a bit of a, an artistic cultural provocation um, and not really knowing where it get to, but it, it just became such a success that it became clear that we needed to set up a non-profit uh, community interest company to help look after it and incubate it and protect all this incredible work that people invested into it. I mean, I think that a year's worth of volunteer time was invested in a single month of the project, you know, yeah. so you want to look after this for people. Um, so we set up this community interest company and then we're very, very fortunate a few months later to get some funding from the National Lottery Community Fund that was announced sort of relatively recently. And this funding is allow, allowing us to sort of grow a team. And, and really the focus is on um, getting as many people involved with slow ways as we can to go out, walk and review and verify and survey these routes and um, then to establish it in our sort of common psyche and mentality for thinking about how we get around the country. And where we want to get to is that, that the actual digital routes we're creating can actually be used through something similar to creative commons where any organization or business can then take those routes to be verified and pull them into the, their own mapping and their own innovations because actually you know what we're interested in is getting more people walking more often further and for more purposes we're fairly agnostic to the platform where someone might actually have that experience because actually there's some people who do navigation platforms far better than we might do it um, but the data is very powerful for people you know so at the moment, if you wanted to work out the route between Swansea and Huddersfield, you might go to Google. And I think we all know that you might trust Google for your train and, you know, driving instructions, but I don't think any of us would trust them for walking just yet. No. But, but if platforms like that started actually showing you um, segments of routes that told you about accessibility, what the quality of them were like, and the fact you knew that 50 people had walked those routes before, then actually you might think, do you know what, I'm going to go and give that a hike because, you know, I've got the confidence to follow that route. Yeah, definitely. I love it. So, like, good luck with that. How can how mm. can everyone get involved? I'm guessing you're hiring and you're doing all sorts of stuff, but are you still looking for volunteers and things like that? Oh, massively so. So we need people in every single town and city in this country to help us with this, this, this project. So just to give you a sense of scale, so there's over 100,000 kilometres of routes in the Slowways network so far. That number is growing all the time. And we need to peer review every route at least three times for it to become a verified part of the Slowways network. <clears throat> and even though um, a slow way is about, say, getting from Beaconsfield to Slough or something, because we want to be able to show different people with different needs and desires other ways to complete that journey, because I don't know, you've got a, a pram with triplets and you're walking on your own, so you need to avoid styles or something. There's actual mul actually multiple routes you're completing a journey between two neighboring places. Anyway, so if you add up um, that 100,000 kilometers, multiply it by three, and you end up with a number that's very similar to, to walking the equivalent of to the moon, um, which you can't really do with 700 people or a thousand people. You need lots of people to be involved. The great thing is that if thousands of people just go and walk 10 kilometers, then it becomes quite easy. 
Um, so yeah, we need lots of people to go out, find the local slow ways, walk it, review it, um, tell us whether it's good enough to be in the network or not. And that's it basically. And the great thing about it is that because most of the routes start and finish at train stations or bus stations, um, actually it's a different way of thinking about moving through the country as well. Yeah, okay, I can't wait to see how it unfolds. So if I remember correctly, you've just left London, haven't you? I have, I've, I've migrated to, to Exeter in the Southwest. And you're a London born and bred. I'm not London born and oh, bred. Oh, so okay. Aldershot, I, I, I remember now. <laughs> there, there you go, Aldershot. Yeah, you're giving away one of my passwords probably there. Somewhere, oh, sorry. Probably. No, <laughs> no, no, you're not, it's fine. Um, uh, yeah, I grew up in an army family, so we sort of moved all over the place, but I've yeah. been, been in London most of the time from the age of 18 up, yeah. And how's it going, like life in the country? So actually, where I live in Exeter, I live in central, central, central Exeter. So compared to where I was in suburban Ealing, although mm. being in London, I was in a, in a very large conurbation. And by the way, I absolutely love London. I have not left London because of any hard feelings towards London at all. Um, but where I'm, at, I'm in Exeter, it's far more actually urban. I'm really close to the centre of the city. But what's really cool about it is that I've got, I've seen since I've got here in my central Exeter home, um, peregrine, falcher, per, uh, peregrine falcons, um, badgers, fox, foxes, all kinds of stuff in the city, as well as being able to enjoy the city itself. So I'm, I'm absolutely loving it here so far. It's great. That sounds amazing. So are you going to turn Exeter into a national park city as well then? Oh, that's, that's down to Exetonians to decide if they're, they're interested in that. <laughs> um, I'm, 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 I'm a bit quiet on that here, really. I'm kind of, I'm not sure I want to rustle those feathers just yet, but um, I'm helping some campaigns at the moment in various cities around the world. I think that Adelaide in Australia would be the next national park city. I heard that Christchurch in New Zealand is very, very hot now. But there are there's campaigns bubbling away in um, Berlin, Manila, Tokyo, Johannesburg, um, uh, Galway, Sacramento, like a whole range of places. So it's, it's an exciting time for the national park city movement. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I remember reading something about um, Natural England's announcement that they were hoping going to adopt this concept so that must be one of your got like one of your underlying goals from the start for that to become policy it would be absolutely fantastic if natural england and the government got behind it and supported it in all the good ways without accidentally taking it into a dark corner and killing it um, yeah <laughs> there's, there's, there's a really fine balance in terms of what kind of government support might come but formalizing and supporting national park cities in that way would be extremely powerful. And yeah, we're very excited about it, but just the, the support needs to be done in the right way um, and, and in recognition of all the work that's been done so far. But you see this sort of idea of, of national park cities manifesting themselves in different ways around the world now and with different levels of support. Um, I think the Canadian government have just announced a program which is very similar to national park cities where they're, they've assigned 130 million Canadian dollars to helping make that work out. Whereas I think that our budget in the National Park City Foundation, National Park Cities, is probably what well, it is. It's, it's, it's much, 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 much smaller than that. Um, so it'd be, it'd be great if the government not only supported it, but actually, you know, put some pragmatic, practical help behind it as well. Yeah, it, it kind of needs money, doesn't it? Like a lot of investment as well. I mean, I remember speaking to you about the National Park City project on our last chat and it was just launching uh, as an official thing I think in London at the time and I remember asking you something along the lines of 
is that it? Is that is that your goal achieved? And you kind of very pragmatically sort of said, well, probably not, not really. There's still so much to do. Yeah, the work will never be done because as long as there's lives to be extended and quality of life to be improved for, for people and, you know, other animals, and as long as we can be improving the health outcomes, you know, and all these things, then the, the work is needed. So, you know, and the reason why you have a national park or a national park city is because things, places, people, wildlife, habitats need protecting that's the purpose of them as well as to celebrate the good things so yeah the work will always need to be done but you know there, there are things that government can do which isn't necessarily about the money though clearly money's helpful but it's things like convening people the right people to go around the table to, to join up thinking like for example in in london um you know our footpaths are not as strategic as they could be they're often fragmented across the different boroughs um, they're not as ambitious as they could be. They're not as signed as well as they could be. And all these things that, that could be far better if just on the issue of paths, things were more ambitious and, and, and better joined up. And dare I say it, for me, the National Park City is, 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 is partially about a complete reframing of the purpose of the city. And so, again, there's all kinds of things you can do in, in policy and through visual identity, which can help more people to understand that the purpose of the National Park City isn't just a place where you go to sort of eat, sleep, work and watch Netflix, but it's a place where we are working together to have a better relationship with nature. There's a lot of talk on social media about how our national parks, like outside of the cities, are kind of maybe underfunded or um, tend to be sort of dominated by the actual landowners and how they care for the, for the landscape as well. There's almost like this sort of quite weird psychological delusional unhealthy problem that many people in our country have when it comes to relationship with nature because many people don't understand the scale of the crisis or they think things are okay or what they're looking at they think is okay but it's really not okay and at the same time you have government you know releasing both targets which are not their real targets and data on their progress towards those targets which is not the real data and so everything becomes really confusing, actually. And there's an awful lot of ignorance as well as misinformation. And then you have this really awful way in which many people talk about a range of issues, nature one of them, in such binary and conflicting ways that just creates more conflict between groups of people who should otherwise be working together, you know? Yeah. So national parks, I think one of the clear places where that's really playing out. Um, and in reality, we need to find ways to sort of form you know, one big team where we're working together on similar aims. But like the problem is our national parks are not as wild as they should be. And so there desperately needs to be better policy to make them wilder places um, as well as better for people's health. But I think there's an incongruence there at the moment between like some of the agricultural policy and what's needed in terms of where we are with the ecological and climate emergencies. Yeah, last week I actually, um joined in I guess remotely and in person at some of the extinction rebellion activities um in particular the march for nature one um which really resonated with me and I took my son and um it was great to be a part of and actually it was really nice to hear people talking about new rewilding projects popping up um there's one called wild card apparently that's starting soon and this sort of like concept of a, of a nature rebellion and I know Exarchum is quite divisive and they've made mistakes in the past. I think what easily happens is that it becomes quite a partisan issue 
potentially a partisan issue when you're right, when actually everyone from all walks of society, whatever your pol political allegiance, need to come together and work together on these issues that are going to affect, you know, like our children and our grandchildren and our neighbours and our nephews and our kids. And for me, participating in sort of these issues is the only thing that's really sort of helping my eco-anxiety at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I can completely hear you. I mean, you, I, I deal with my anxieties around these issues by being engaged and doing things, whether they're small things or big things. Um, and while I think that XR haven't got everything right, I don't think the government's getting everything right. I don't think, you know, the BBC's getting everything right. You know, I think that I, I give XR an awful lot of leeway for not getting everything right. And knowing that if, if they weren't doing what they were doing, then we wouldn't be making as much progress you know, as, as, as we are across a range of activity because they've ultimately widened out the conversation in a way to sort of make it okay to talk about a range of topics that really weren't being spoken about, you know, in the way they are now. So I, I, I praise them for the activity that they up to really. And, you know, I was on a call the other day and it was interesting because there was some, some farmers attacking environmentalists and some environmentalists kind of attacking farmers. And someone just very astutely pointed out the fact that a lot of, the environmentalists actually are farmers and a lot of farmers are environmentalists because actually mm. that's what farmers do and we often hear in these debates from from quite divisive characters who are pushing at the extremes of these different positions and meanwhile there are thousands of people who are doing incredible wildlife farming across the country that are just sort of humble enough that it's getting on with it or newspapers who are looking to you know sell an argument and uh, create an extreme position to try and sell you know their their news don't talk about these people who are just getting on with these incredible projects. So I think there's an, an awful lot more to be hopeful than maybe a lot of people give, you know, a, a credit for just in terms of that sort of everydayness of people just doing really cool stuff, mm. but it's also not fast enough. No, it's not fast enough. And you're right about how XR have helped to move the conversation on, you know, net zero is a thing now where it wasn't before. Uh, the government declared a climate emergency shortly after the original protests that happened. Um, I just, yeah, I just hope that, you know, like, like you said, we do kind of have a focus on all of the good stuff that's happening as well as all the bad stuff, because otherwise it could be quite overwhelming. And that's why it's so nice to hear about slow ways. Yeah. And I mean, you know, is there possibly a more affordable, green, low carbon, memorable, enjoyable, democratic form of um you know um public transit you know i think it's the ultimate way of doing that and, and it's actually nothing new it's what people have been doing for thousands of years uh, but we've just forgotten it and started to drive places and work, walk in circles in, instead yeah. of walking between places yeah um, and i'm always delighted to hear about people who are using slow ways to go on journeys whether it's you know to get between two neighboring places or combining routes to go on longer journeys and I think when I think about our strategic footpaths at the moment, a lot of them are challenging for people because of their distances, but also just the sim simple thing of booking affordable accommodation. Um, but with slow ways, because you might be walking from, I don't know, Swansea to, I don't know, Middlesbrough or somewhere, because every 15 to 20 kilometers, you come across another town or city where there's like a travel in and a premier in and there's a Tesco and there's like a Lidl and whatever else. Actually the price point for going on a long walk comes way down compared to if you have to stay at sort of, you know, pretty dodgy four or five star hotels, hotels and pubs that are ripping you off the whole way. 
So I think it opens up long distance walking um, in a way that, that that isn't really thought about at the moment. I love it. Thanks so much, Dan. Just Google Slowways and you're going to find the Slowways website. Type in uh, the name of your town or your city, wherever you are. Go and walk a Slowways route. And I'm at Dan Raven Ellison on Twitter and I'd love to hear about your adventures. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nature Bounce. Don't forget to rate it and subscribe to the whole series. 